0: And, um, and then the question was, how as a company do we take this forward? How do we establish this as a potential opportunity for the company? And um, so, so we, uh, we had to convince the company that this was an important opportunity. So obviously we met with Ben, met with the research team in, in Europe, and uh, we had to pitch internally uh, to the executive committee of Medtronic that we wanted to, you know, to, to spend time and, and resources on this project. And uh, what made it very easy, though, was the, the, just the visual nature of the outcome. The <laughs> you, know, yeah, you, you could show a picture and, and then say, this is, this is what's possible.
1: Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome to Stimulating Brains. So far in the podcast, I have been interviewing key opinion leaders from academia and clinical practice, and sometimes individual patients that graciously shared their insights after undergoing DBS surgery. However, beyond patients and clinicians, there is a third component necessary for success of DBS, which are of course our partners in the industry. Without great industry leadership, it is hard, if impossible, to translate scientific findings into clinical practice. For instance, when the Grenoble team developed deep brain stimulation back in the 80s and 90s, they needed a strong industry partner to bring their breakthrough therapy into clinical practice. So in some of the upcoming episodes, including the present one, I will interview executives from the device industry. Who better to start this journey with than Todd Langevin, who has been a key figure in the field of DBS and neuromodulation on the industry side for decades. Following the success of Benebits team in Grenoble inside Medtronic, Todd led the internal venturing team that pitched, developed and launched DBS, which is now an 800 million business worldwide. So in a sense, we may owe it to Todd's team similarly as much as to the scientific team in Grenoble, that DBS has become a therapy that is being applied worldwide. During his 20 years at Medtronic, he grew the DBS business to a 350 million unit revenue. After a brief hiatus in the cardiac world, he moved back to DBS to lead the startup Functional Neuromodulation as CEO, which aims at establishing DBS to the Fornix as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease, following the breakthrough successes made by the Lozano team in Toronto. Indeed, under Todd's leadership, the company achieved the CE mark for the treatment in Europe. Finally, in 2021, Todd moved to Biotronic, where he currently is the president of the neuromodulation business. I very much hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I had, and also that you will enjoy the decision to talk to industry folks a bit more on this podcast. Obviously, I will continue talking to scientists and clinical researchers, as well as hopefully patients as well. Thank you so much for tuning in, stimulating brains. Yeah, so so thank you so much, Todd, for uh, agreeing to um, do this interview with me. I'm I'm super excited. Um, It's it's one in a let's say new angle of also uh, talking to more folks in industry and in the DBS field. Uh, Just talk to. the other day from, from Abbott and there are some more plans also uh, planned from, from other industry leaders and um, uh, I will have already introduced you a bit formally by now so we can jump into the um, content directly and as you know I, I, I heard you have listened to the podcast before to break the ice I always ask about um, free time and hobbies uh, I know you're a busy person but anything you do beyond working
0: Yeah, yeah. I've always liked to uh, stay in shape and and be active. So in the summers, I do a lot of mountain biking. Um, And in Minnesota, there aren't any mountains. So I I pretty much stay on the the flats. But I I do try to train for a a bike race that's done in Wisconsin called the Chiquamwagon 40-mile bike race. And some years I do the 40. Some years I do the short one, depending on how much time I get on the bike. But And I also, while I'm biking, I listen to podcasts. Oh, great. And, uh, so <laughs> I really got into your podcast last summer, and it's a great way to uh, to spend the time while you're pedaling around the lakes in Minneapolis, listening to your uh, your podcast. I think you do a great job, and I love listening to uh, to the people you interview and hearing hearing their perspective. so and then skiing skiing in the winter as much as I can. I like to ski and um, and uh, and i I like to read. Um, do a lot of as much reading as, as I can. I, I'm a sucker for for good book reviews. So if I see a good book review, I quickly order the the book. And then I've got a pile of books on my desk or my bedside that I need to get to at some point. And okay. I've got two grandkids, so I'm back into changing diapers. And they we spend a lot of time with them, two two years and four years. Uh Fantastic. And they're they're just great little kids, Ella and Tally.
1: That's great. Uh, we, we just have uh, our like grandparents of, of, of our kids over, and they are also back into <laughs> changing divers now. So um, I can relate to that. Fantastic. And since you mentioned um, mountain biking, I loosely remembered um, seeing you know an old article one day about Lothar Krinker when he was still at Medtronic, also doing a lot of biking. Did you ever get to bike with him at the time? Or no, since never bike. No, no okay.
0: never bike with Lothar. No, I okay. I knew we did that, but I but I haven't now.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, in, in your career, uh, very, very interesting um, uh, a career you had. Uh, who were key mentors or turning points that brought you to where you are now?
0: I think uh, probably the biggest, the biggest event for me really, it, you know, as you, you may hear in the conversation, my career hasn't really been planned out. I think I've taken advantage of opportunities and been in the right place at the right time and been lucky, frankly. And um, I was uh, doing a biology degree at Minnesota and uh, um, one, I, I took an interesting class which I thought w- would, be, would be fun to do, call it, it was a chronobiology class there. And so I had to do a project for that chronobiology class so I went over to uh, Franz Hallberg's lab who happened to be, the, he's a, known as the father of chronobiology actually, coined the word circadian. And just walked in there and they let me see him and he said, yeah, you can do, you can do a little project here for us. So it involved collecting rat urine for, you know, 24 hours with these rats and doing some, some urinary analysis on the circadian rhythmicity of some electrolytes and things like that. And, um, and I really loved it. I loved being in the lab. I loved working there. He was an interesting guy and he had people coming through his lab all the time from all over the world. And, uh, and I, I asked him if I could continue to work there and um, just do animal experiments, taking care of the animals, learn how to do data analysis. And um, I, got in, I met a guy named Bill Rushefsky who was an oncologist there who had showed up at Hallberg's lab and he was really interested in chronobiology and the applications of biological rhythms to cancer chemotherapy. So uh, when I graduated, um, Bill, uh, he got an NIH grant to study this in ovarian and bladder cancer and um stymine, platinum and doxorubicin for, for treating those conditions. And he um, asked me if I would come and work at his lab when he got the grant, so I did that. And I was exposed to a tremendous uh, amount of um, things there, animal experiments, study design, writing paper, abstracts, staying up. You know, 24 hours at a time doing these experiments in the lab, and it was it was it was was a great experience. So he he gave me a lot of uh, opportunity and responsibility there, and um, I'd say that was a pretty important turning point for me because we were using. Eventually, we started using Medtronic Synchrony pumps for the study.
1: Huh.
0: And uh, and we I got to know Medtronic people. I got to go in the OR to support the pump implants. And that's how I got uh, into Medtronic, through that experience. So, so it's just all from taking a biology class, going to Hallberg's lab, meeting Rushevsky, getting into Medtronic, it's all...
1: It just happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Was Medtronic a very different company at the time compared to now? Was it smaller? Uh, I, I mean, surely a bit smaller, but, you know, what do you say?
0: So at that time, it was, it was purely a cardiovascular company. And they started yeah. this venture using technology that they had, you know, in-house to apply to, to this pump. So they wanted to develop the pump for an artificial pancreas. That didn't work out so well. It was too difficult at the time. And they um, hmm. expanded the application to, to, to cancer chemotherapy, intraarterial infusion of a drug called FUDR at the time. And um, it was sort of a venture within the company they were funding. So uh that's 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 how the pump was used. That's that was the first approval for the Sacrament pump actually. And so the company then was like eight hundred million dollars in revenue. Uh since the acquisition of Covidian it's uh, you know probably thirty plus billion now. Wow. So it was a pretty small pretty small company when I first joined there.
1: Fantastic. And and so you spent most of your career in industry, and we'll get to that, but looking back now at the time in academia how do you how do you see it now? Was it the wild west was it fun was it i don't know um how would you rate it now
0: in in academia
1: or yeah. in industry at that time uh, no no academia at the time your your time went in the lab
0: so um as as I said, it was a tremendous experience for me because I got exposed to so, t- you know, top-notch scientists and clinicians at the University of Minnesota, you know, names, you know, John DeGerion was around at the time, he was doing the first transplants, um, just people like that who you run, you, you, you come across run, and, and cross paths with. And I got, a, you know, we, we had an NIH grant, so that was, so some sig- significant funding was, was, was um, available to us to do qu- quite a few interesting things. And a lot of students would come through the lab as well and, and, and visiting, you know, professors from other parts of the world. So I really got exposed to the sort of the international nature of things, what it's like to write papers and publish the demands associated with that. And also the demands of keeping a lab going. And, you know, yeah. I didn't have those personally, but I, you know, I knew the, the pressure was there to keep the funding coming in, pay people, what's on the horizon, keep writing grants. So... It's uh, it, you know it, it was it was a great learning experience for me to get ex- to get exposed to just the process of what goes on in academia, yeah. and also the translational science of taking things from the lab, you know, to the clinic and ultimately uh, ultimately to uh, to a commercial application, which yeah. was uh, you know couldn't have been a better training ground.
1: Fantastic. So, Alim Louis Benabit, uh, as we know, published the first modern-day case series of thalamic DVS for Parkinson's in 1987, and that's the exact same year that you moved to Medtronic. Is that a coincidence, or probably f- still a coincidence at that time, right? At that or
0: time, it was a total coincidence. It uh, just so happened, yeah, it was the same year, but at that time, I didn't know anything about what Ben was doing when I joined, got it. <laughs> when I joined Medtronic. But I, I learned very quickly once, once I got there.
1: But so so exactly that that period then how because you led the internal um, venturing team that pitched and developed and then launched DBS um, at Medtronic, um, which is now at least an eighty uh, eight hundred million dollar um, business. Still quoting from your CV, maybe it's even more by now. Um, so so you were at as you said the right time at the right place. But how did it emerge? Like how did uh, approach Medtronic or you guys approach him or how, how did it come together and how how then did you get involved into DBS
0: yeah so uh, it's fun fun to reminisce about about those days and you know we had met we had a, a European headquarters uh, in, uh, in 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 Medtronic it was located I think it was at Paris and in Brussels but we had a research group in Maastricht in the Netherlands that was set, set up there and and Keith Mullett led that group, and Franz Gehlen worked for, for, for Keith. And then we had a country uh, organization, um, and the rep there, Daniel Pignot was really brought the brought the opportunity through the European organization. And um, Ben was interested in applying the, our technology to, uh, to you know to, to, to brain stimulation, particularly tremor at the time. And so that's how we learned about it. And he had done some groundbreaking breaking work, of course, and. And um, and then the question was, how as a company do we take this forward? How do we establish this as a potential opportunity for the company? And um, so, so we uh, we had to convince the company that this was an important opportunity. So, obviously, we met with Ben, met with the research team in, in Europe, and um, we had to pitch internally uh, to the executive committee of Ventronic that we wanted to you know to to spend time and, and resources on this project. And um, what made it very easy though was the, the just the visual nature of the outcome. Sure. Right. You could Wait. show you. you didn't to have to, you not you, you you could show a picture and, and then say this is this is what's possible. And um and so one thing led to another and we were able to sort of develop that relationship and then support Ben's Ben's work, um, uh, you know, to 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 further develop the VIM application, and so that's how we got the attention of the company. But then we had to figure out how to transition his his observations into a bigger study, and then ultimately uh, he moved on also to STN and you know STN after that, and then GPI and so on. So that's that's kind of how it started. I got to give props to uh, to the European group, uh, Keith. Keith and Franz for, Gielen for originally saying, hey, this is something we should pay attention to.
1: Great. Yeah, I, I met Franz Gehlen um, uh, a few times, actually, when, it was, uh, when he was still around in, in at Medtronic. He, he, and um, he, he was a very interesting guy to talk to, too. Um, so so remind me, at the time, I think Medtronic had a pain device, right, and that was for spinal cord stimulation, and the max frequency was 130 hertz, which is why we still use that to the state, I think, um, and and how, how big was the pain market, or, or the you know how how established had that been? How long had that been on the market? Do you remember?
0: So the so the so the spinal cord stimulator was that Medtronic was selling at the time. Uh, so it was a spinal cord stimulator for chronic intractable pain, and um, this was in, so Medtronic had been selling that for probably 10, 15 years by then. Okay. and it's still a pretty small market. It's grown. Yep. tremendously to this day but we had to we had to modify the the device it was called itrell 2 to yep. uh to be suitable for for the pain application which wasn't a huge huge transformation of that technology we had to develop a dbs lead because the only other lead that we had was a a lead for pain which was a fairly brutal way to, to 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 it had a it had a um a ring at the end that was literally pushed down with a cannula to the PVG or PAG to treat pain, but that wasn't suitable for what Ben was doing. So we had to do, modify our four contact lead to, so that Ben could use that and also so he could expand to 185 ultimately from 130 to 185. And There's yeah. a little bit of technology developed, not a huge amount though, to, to
1: just take that SCS device and use it for what Ben needed it. And the first electrode, I think, was the three three eight zero. With that zero being the loop, and is is that right? Is is that the na- why the name was zero? I heard that somewhere. Oh, that
0: could very well be. Okay. It was a 30, it Was it three three eight zero? Thirty three eighty for sure. And I, you know, Got when it. I first learned how that was actually put in place, it was
1: a, you know, kind of a brutal way to approach it. But I guess that's that's how it was done in the early days, right? Yeah. Okay, got it and and so so how closely did you interact with the Grenoble team at the time were you in France a lot or they in your yeah US yeah
0: or? yeah very closely so visited Ben, ben she' be qu- quite a few times in 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 the you know during that time I was still st- I was still based in the US and um, and so we we got we got to working on that project and I led the DBS we called the DBS Venture team then and so we assembled a few. People from different function areas to to you know to work on this, and um, the biggest task at hand right then was to get you know get the clinical work done. So so yeah, I spent a lot of time with Ben. We, we'd visit Grenoble quite often. I know he had a favorite restaurant that he'd always go to called the Auberge Napoleon, I, I believe. And, and sometimes okay. I think they'd even open it up for him on Mondays when they were supposed to be closed. Close. So so okay. we, we we got the restaurant you know all to ourselves and. Uh, so it was a yeah it was a very interesting time and and I think that uh, you know Abdel Benazouz would be coming through there and I think Patricia Limousin was, was yeah, working yeah. there at the time so, um,
1: Pierre Polak. Was,
0: yeah, yeah yeah of course Pierre was was, whole, was part of that that whole team and and uh, it was a, it was a you know it was an exciting time to we didn't we, we didn't really know where it was going to end up of course we just wanted to prove this out and and I think that the big um, you know, Ben, have you been in Ben's operating room?
1: No, I have not. No. So,
0: he had an operating room set up so, because he used ventriculography, right, to, to, for yeah. targeting. And so, he had, a, he had a, an AP x-ray to, and a lateral x-ray that he would use and was right above the operating tables to, to adjust for parallax. So, he used this sort of, a, I guess, an older technique at that time to do coordinate planning and he did careful work in the OR. He took a very long time. He was collecting you know, collecting microelectrode, you know, information a millimeter mm-hmm. at a time from five electrodes. And I he he was doing that for, you know, a purpose because he, he knew he was gonna have to go back and explain to the, everybody who was listening why the fundamentals of why this should work and, and the targeting around it. He did the same for SDN. And so that was that was really important because one of the questions we had as a company is this going to translate to to other neurosurgeons or has Ben the only one in the world that can do this? Sure. As it turns out, I mean, you know, it, it was translatable, but it wasn't. Vim's one thing, but but stn and gpi may have been, you know, another thing.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's exactly the the thing that the question came to mind. Um, I, I would say that you know. To some degree, maybe depression is currently at a similar stage where some people say it, it works in the hands of Helen Mayberg, but will it scale to to others? And um, uh, so, so how how did you guys approach that, or, or was was there a you know at the time most people were I think ACPC based um, targeting? Then the frames might have been different. So, what were the next steps once, let's say, you had? And we're, I think we're, we're jumping a bit forward here, but you had FDA, like, you see, mark or FDA approval, and others could test it, um, or even before the approval um, in in site trials. How how did you guys approach that? Did did the company play a part in educating other surgeons, or how did that pan out?
0: Yeah, well, I wish we could say we were we were, we had a, a systematic approach. We did have a we did have an approach. Um, and when we were starting the clinical work, uh, we both we had European sites and U.S. sites, and I'll expand hmm. on that if, if, if you want. Uh, but uh, remember, we were, you always have to write instructions for your technology when you do a clinical trial. Yep. And we were in a meeting one time with our group, and um, and we had one of our executives say, no, no, we, we, we we're not in the position to tell neurosurgeons how to do their job. Hmm. They're neurosurgeons, they're trained, they're functional neurosurgeons, they know stereotaxy. The first line in our manual should say, you have now loc- located the ventral intermediate nucleus. Got it. <laughs> so leave all that up, that part up front to, to the neurosurgeons, but there's a lot of variability from surgeon to surgeon. So luckily, uh, you know, we had Ben in front of the, he would go to, he, he, would, visit, he would visit sites and we do training. We had investigator meetings and he would explain, you know, how he was doing all this. And, uh, but still we, we, were, um, we were leaving a lot of it up to the neurosurgeon to, to, to do the job that they were yeah. hopefully trained to do. And luckily the procedure was robust enough yeah. to withstand some variability. And I would say that may not be the case for every indication we're looking at in, in brain, brain stimulation these days. So we've we, we, we learned a lot from that experience and we, we, yeah. wouldn't, we wouldn't do that approach t-
1: today. Got it. Yeah. Make make sure. Yeah. I think it was also, yeah, as you said, a cardiac um, company at the time, mainly. um, Right. So, so um, this was certainly a bold and risky move from you guys to, to, to venture that way. And um, um, very, very fascinating. I heard via um, uh, somebody that worked closely with, with Ben at the time that after the VIM, there might've been also attempts to do pallidum, but then, that was not as convincing at the time and then they they moved back to this STN and then you know le- once the Bergman paper came out and um, Alim Benazou's work um, in humans um, and then I think only later recovered uh, the GP- took up the GPI again is, is that the same collection you had that they tried GPI first and after the VIM? I don't know
0: that they tried it first um, okay. but I know Ben for sure was an STN advocate and then from from the pallidotomy work that had, that had been done from you know Leighton and others that had resurrected sort of pallidotomies and then the extension of um, of stimulation to this was sort of I guess also in part driven by DeLong's you know model of how how the circuitry should be working in yeah. in, a funct- in a in a functional state and a pathological state so um, and you know in fact when we when we when we moved on from from tremor to to, to um, STN and GPI, we had, a, we had a global meeting in, in Minneapolis and we brought in, I'm sp- I probably missed some of these names here, but um, you know Tony Lang, Andres, Warren mm-hmm. Alano, Jose Obeso, Malin was there. I'm sure. And we had some pretty serious people at that meeting. We talked about the study of doing STN versus GPI or combining them in the same study and then comparing the two. So that was still an open, you know, debate question for for the company at the time. As it turned out, I believe the study did do both at the same time, yeah. And yeah. we were able to evaluate, not perfectly, but the relative merits of the two in that setting. So, so, so it wasn't nailed down right at, right at the beginning. So we did have to sure. do some, some
1: work on that. And so, so I think a big milestone was the New England Journal paper that was then published and. Did that lead to FDA approval and CE mark? Is, is that correct so? So um,
0: I want, yeah, I, I, I want to. Can I just go back to one thing though about VM? Yeah, and um, so so what we, you know, we were still working in the VM project, and uh, that I think I think Ben's paper was. He had an early paper, and maybe Lance. I think if that's if yeah. And um, and we were still trying to. Uh, to figure out how to move this therapy forward. So we had we had a USIDE you know, for VIM, and we got that approved. And and it wasn't all that easy because FDA didn't get this at the time. And we had so many conversations with them. And then one time, after not the first one, the second or third one, one of the reviewers then asked, hey, is this the whole thing implantable? So it just goes to show you their sense of knowledge of the DBS space wasn't very well established mm-hmm. either. And then uh, we had our first case in... Um, in Florida, University of Tampa, uh, University of Florida Tampa, and uh, Warren Alano was a neurologist. He wanted to be the first one uh, yeah. to, 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 to to do a case, and it just so happened that the case was scheduled around uh, a W World S- uh, Society of Stereotactic Functional Surgery meeting in Ixtapa. Mm-hmm. So I was there, and then uh, and, and Ben was there, and, and Ben was presenting, and I asked him if he would leave the meeting and go support this case in Florida which didn't seem far away from Mexico to Florida, but he said yes. Okay, and okay. We, got, we, bu- we left the meeting, got on a plane, and, um, and Don Smith was the neurosurgeon there. And Mr. Schaefer, George Schaefer, was the patient with a Parkinsonian tremor. And he had had it for quite some time, 10 years. And, um, and it was really an awesome experience because he uh, went to dinner the night before. We talked about the case. Of course, Smith doesn't have intriculography. So Ben's in a foreign foreign environment, different operating room, and we're not really sure how this is going to go. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and we're in the operating room. You could see people from the outside looking in the in the you know the round windows of operating rooms, peering in to see because this this French surgeon was there doing a procedure for the first patient in the U.S. trial. Yeah. And. Uh, I don't know. Ben probably about fainted when Don Smith got out his millimeter ruler when he was when he was advancing the, the lead ever so gently, pushing it, measuring, pushing it. Today we have you know microcontrollers that will sure. advance it. Um, but then he got to the spot that he thought was the right spot. We turned down the stimulator, and the tremor, as you know, you've seen, it d- disappeared. Fantastic. And I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, but I'm. There were tears in the operating room. I'm sure from from these nurses and, you know, their are operating room nurses are tough people, right? They see they've seen a lot. And then Mr. Schaefer asked for a pen. He had to wait. He asked for a pen, and they and they, somebody asked why do you want a pen, and he said because I want to sign my name. Uh. For the first time in like ten years or something like that. So it was just a, a really compelling experience and outcome. And he had Parkinsonian tremors, so tremors is his worst symptom. And then it, it was a, a huge, huge success. And we didn't know because Ben Ben was working with the newest. He had met the guy just the night before, and Don Smith did a great job and got the great outcome. And he um, he um, I think he was featured on the cover of *Andrew Porter* somewhere in the end report. Where he liked to make model airplanes, uh, uh, wooden model airplanes you couldn't do that for, for 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 years and years and years before the surgery just a truly fantastic. gratifying experience
1: oh i'm sure thank you so much for sharing that yeah i sure so it it is a miracle it stays a miracle right even even um veteran surgeons always tell me that 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 they um it never grows old right so so i um fantastic and then uh how how was it flying with him you know, from from Mexico to Tampa, and how was he as a person? How was the interaction like? And um, feel free to share more about the you know hands-on experience there. He's a, he's just
0: a, um, I, I, I spent the, that, that experience. I spent a lot of time with him uh, over the years as well on on this on this project. And he's just a very gentle hmm. gentleman, very uh, in in every sense of the word, very careful scientist, really brilliant person too to talk to um full of ideas well thought out um you know positions and um i've got to know his wife yvette a little bit too um during those experiences as well and um boy you know he devoted his life to this you know the, 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 the hard work that he put in the or and uh i don't think he's he would always say he hardly slept you know maybe two or three hours a night and um, sometimes you could you could tell by talking to Ben because he would like almost, okay. almost fall asleep while you're having a conversation because maybe he slept two hours the night before I, you know I, I don't know but he really really very very nice man and uh, just just honored to get to spend, spend time. very very easy person to talk to on a variety of topics as, as well.
1: And the Ben gun, so his his um, five electrode micro electrode um, system that existed already at the time, as you mentioned, right? So, so that was a innovation from before. Or?
0: You know, I think that uh, the, the, when he was doing his microelectrode recording, I mean, he was doing that by, I'm pretty sure, pulling out one lead and reinserting it, and then doing it over and over several times. Okay. Then, then, the, then to facilitate that, that's when the Ben, some, somebody manufactured, and maybe it was Ventronic, I think, manufactured the Ben gun. I'm not sure who who named it, it was kindly named after, you know, an old 1800s, a Gatling gun, which kind of rotated and shot a lot of bullets hmm. all at once. So it reminded somebody of the Gatling gun, so I think somebody called it the Ben gun uh, after yeah. that.
1: Interesting. Okay, great. And then... Um, how, how fast did things take off and maybe what were the obstacles in bringing this to market?
0: Well, How long um, did it
1: take as well? You know, what, what was the time frame for these things?
0: Yeah, I, we, we, um, we were able to assemble uh, European and US data to support the, the IDE application and we went to the panel. We had to go to a panel meeting so there had to be an FDA review panel that reviewed the data, safety of course was, was really important and as well as the efficacy and, and of course the a big question came up, well, you can't blind these patients, True, right? Because how do you blind somebody when their tremor goes away when you turn it off? So they kind of know. Yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of, that question came up and so, somebody at the panel right, you know, said, look, you know, if something's so efficacious as to break the blind what are you going to do so we got we got over that hump and then um that that uh, ultimately got approval um, we got first approval in Europe so we launched that in Europe first and then we got approval in the US but i i can mm-hmm. tell you not everybody was even convinced at that point we i had neurologists say why would i do that sure you know, i'm not really sure it's appropriate it's brain surgery it's deep brain surgery yeah. so maybe we shouldn't have called it deep brain stimulation it should have been something else but that's not going to go away and um and neurologists are careful uh, physicians and they manage medications well so not everybody's on board with that so we really had to um and to this day i think some of those issues still exist um to convince people yeah. that w- when when is the right time and and uh and whether it's the right time
1: to to treat these these patients so it's- um but, Still but very underutilized, even it totally today. Is. I, to, I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sorry, it Joe. is. It mm-hmm. is,
0: and I think that um, you know tremor is huge. Five million people with with just essential tremor in the U.S. Maybe more, and Parkinsonian tremor wasn't it wasn't in and of itself just that that single symptom wasn't a huge market opportunity. So that that has its place, and certainly certainly was important. I think the bigger the bigger uh, opportunity then was just straight. In the PD, so we quickly transitioned, based on Ben's work again. Without Ben, I, I took one of Ben's videos to the executive committee and said, "Here's the extension of this of this therapy in a Parkinsonian patient who who was, you know, couldn't move basically until you turned the device on, and he was doing was doing all the things." And hmm. again, it's an easy it's easy to convince um, uh, an executive team if you got if you got the videos and. Uh, sure. Yeah, that, that worked out well
1: you mentioned that the naming and I I uh, seem to recall that that was naming from Metronic. it was not from the Grenoble team so do you remember who gave the brain simulation its name was it you or some somebody oh, in the team
0: no no it wasn't it was always I think it's 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 a legacy from so most of the brain stimulation was done for pain right earlier before that that's what their, most of the experience was and uh, it probably came from the neurosurgical community, actually, at the time. So we we were sort of stuck with it. And we didn't think too much about it until we got some, you know, some of the marketing people got involved. And, you know, they realized, you know, that maybe deep brain is going to scare some patients off. So I think we even tried to call it a brain pacemaker Okay. It really didn't didn't stick because the field just knew it as DBS. It's always going to be DBS, and it's not going to it's not going to
1: change. Got it. It, it. It's interesting because, because in, um, I think in the last think tank, Mike Oaken always has the um, DBS think tank every year, and I think they even discussed this that rebranding it to what you just said, break, pacemaker, might might make might be better um, for the same reasons. I mean, I I don't even think you know to me deep is a is a nice. Thing, but um, you, you're probably right in terms of surgery, uh, can can be scary, and um, then I do I do recall. So so I think you know in electrical stimulation before the modern times, they they I think often called it ESB, so electrical simulation of the brain, um, and then uh, I at least I, I seem to recall that Marwan Harris, who's you know very much into the history of these things, he dug up some sort of. Um, What was the, when was it used the first time? And I think he attributed it to some Medtronic marketing, but uh, maybe that's wrong. I don't know. It's, um, so, so your recollection is that it was, um, already in the surgical community and then you stuck with it. Yeah. I I just, yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so obstacles and challenges, um, were there any setbacks that you could recall or investment problems or whatever, um, not well, I,
0: I think that um, I, I think that uh, I, I don't recall any particular. I, I'm sure we had challenges with enrollment. Um, enrollment in any clinical trials always is always slower than you had hoped. and um, mm-hmm. and sites sites are ambitious about what they think they can do and what they what they can't do. But um, I don't. Rec- I'm sure it was slower than we had hoped i'm I'm mm-hmm. certain of that. Um, I mean, the other the other thing which is um, which I think is instructive from this experience, and I talked a couple times about the videos. I was convinced that you show anybody the video, how can you argue with it, even not just internally, but out the outside world. sure. you can show you can show a spiral diagram before and after, and it's 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 obvious, Obvious, yeah, but we were not and and you know we're trying to grow a business right you know w- the medical device business we have to work with clinicians and scientists to to move these things forward but it's a commercial enterprise in the end you have to bring it to patients otherwise it's not even worth you know almost not worth doing i wouldn't say it's not worth hmm. um but um but it's we're not we just weren't sitting there and taking Taking calls from neurosurgeons around the world, can I get a, a device? It takes a lot of work now. Once the once the therapy is approved, there's a core people that know a lot about it who participate in the clinical trial. But but the run-of-the-mill neurologist, neurosurgeon in private practice, maybe they read the literature, maybe they don't. But they don't know they don't know about this probably. Yeah. So you do have to get the word out, and that's a, that's a big that's a big lift from a from a company. Sure. Uh, to, to educate, train the neurosurgeons, educate on the right patients, <clears throat> getting reimbursement codes for all of this. Mm-hmm. All that takes a lot of time. And, and that's, it wasn't from day one uh, that, that we had a successful commercial therapy. It took of several years of building it and the capabilities to support the implants in the OR, using the technology, all that stuff had to be developed over time. Yeah. And so that... Hey, that was a big, big challenge, and it's going to be. It's the same challenge for any 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 new therapy. It could be the most effective therapy in the world. It you know it doesn't. There's still a lot more work to do after that.
1: Makes so makes sense, yeah. PR, getting the word out, educating. I can imagine, yeah. Um, so so the army of uh, sales reps that that Medtronic had that were probably usually talking to the cardiologists, all of a sudden also had to talk to neurosurgeons and um, neurologists and so on that makes sense and and it was like you grew that business right so um i never worked in industry i picture that a bit as kind of a startup within medtronic is 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 that a good description of that um that entity of uh, neuromodulation okay Right. Yeah, it was a
0: brand new, so, so the business, the neuro business, neuromodulation business in Medtronic consisted of spinal cord stimulation at the time. So that, that, was, a, that was a homegrown new indication, and that's a very effective treatment, and it's yeah. evolved over the years, but Medtronic was the, was the originator of that therapy, and then we took that same technology and extended, you know, uh, in an opportunistic way, serendipity, you know, without Ben, we would probably have, you know, done that, um, and then, mm-hmm. we, then we, we created a new business out of that work that he did along with the you know the other clinicians who, who were involved and and patients by the way who you know Mr. Schaefer was the first guy in the US that's agreed to sign you got to give the patients a, a huge amount of a credit for their courage uh, to be willing to to put their trust in the clinicians and the company that this is yeah. the right right thing for them to do I, I, we we can't lose you know we can't lose sight of that um, but but along along the line then we were able to um, the, the the business that I ha- had also was an implantable pump for spasticity, intrathecal okay. back So that was part of the part of the business that I managed, which is also an in, you know homegrown um, business as well within the company. So Medtronic was really good at that okay. in those days. And year over year we grew. We we're able to um, treat more patients. In turn, we we're able to hire more salespeople, hire more technologists who could go in and support the OR. So. So that's that's how you grow that, that kind of business year over year. But it all has to go back to the safety and efficacy of the technology, number one. Sure. And then you can extend that um, over time.
1: Uh, apart from the Grenoble team, were there any clinical partners, maybe in the U.S. or Europe, that stuck out, that were really instrumental of making it a success or being good partners in developing this?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll go back, and, and I think that... Um, you know, when we were, were launching and getting these things, you know, clinically validated and in the marketplace, um, you know, I'll, I'll go back again. Warren Alano was really instrumental. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Joe Jankovic, uh, w- w- you know, and the, the, the Emory group, Jerry Vitek, um, the surgeons there, and Malin DeLong, the, um, the, the, um, the Gainesville group. Michael Kelly Oakland was yeah, really helpful, and yeah. and in Kelly Kelly. I think Kelly even went and trained, um, and he spent some time in Grenoble. Quite a few neurosurgeons did go through there. So
1: he did. He he he, he trained with both Ben and Malin, I think, and uh, yeah, um, mentioned that he would love for them to get the Nobel Prize. would <laughs> that be As awesome? Well, yeah. That'd be so great. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then absolutely. of course,
0: Andres, yeah. Andres Lozano. This is in Toronto. and Tony Lang were really um, were really very very helpful with with the company helping us. You know, you know, plan ahead and, and get things right for the clinicians, and Jose Obesa was involved. yeah, early on um, he he was really excited instrumental. he had done a lot of great um, basic research and clinical research too to s- support Nexus of action. Um, uh, so yeah we, we 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 had a really awesome set of advisors and collaborators, and I just want to emphasize that companies don't do these things on their own. Uh, it's It's a really collaborative effort. Between sure. and scientists, a company can bring resources to bear. We, we can; it's only a, a one part, one small part of them.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, not small part, I think, but yeah, um, certainly. Yeah, um, and 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 then you 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 did also launch the Kinetra um, at Medtronic, um which was the first dual channel DBS system. Can you maybe, in brief, walk us through the I'm sure long winding process of getting such a new medical device to market?
0: Yeah. I think the the so so we b- before that everybody's implanting two devices right one on each side yeah and uh, it was it was acceptable but of course let's let's have let's let's make this an easier process for a patient so we were able to um, we had a we had a parallel initiative in the spinal cord stimulation business with a device called Synergy. Mm-hmm. Which was also, which is the same thing as Kinetra, except that Kinetra was mo- was modified specifically for DBS slightly, and um, to get to get the next generation device approved is much easier than the first generation. Sure. So for the dual, for the dual, for the single channel devices, again we had to go through the whole FDA process. The review of the the review of the data was was a, a difficult and uh, by FDA was. Was a difficult process, and we had to go to panel once again to explain to the panel why this is a um, safe and effective treatment, acceptable risk-benefit profile. Uh, we knew who, which patients it was it was going to be used for. The first labeling was only for advanced, you know, Parkinson's patients, but mm-hmm. FDA was very specific and deliberate about that. Um, so that 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 part of it was the heavy lift there, getting Kynect approved was more straightforward
1: because the path had already been you know
0: had been laid yeah. um and i don't know if you ever have you ever seen the connector device though
1: well it's been a while i i, I don't even know i'm not sure
0: pretty um, it's a pretty I'm big gonna... it's a pretty it's big, big yeah. device yeah and yeah. uh you know, the the concerns were oh, this is too big we can't nobody's gonna want to implant this um, hmm. but it's the only thing we could do at the time and and we had the analogy would be. Uh, secret Med pump was pretty big too, and people implanted that. So, yeah. so that was um, that. That was the experience there, and of course, getting smaller devices was was always on the development plan for all of our technology.
1: And and I remember back then. So I think that's not being done much anymore. That that some of the devices were also implanted in the abdomen so with an extension down, right? So not to be in the chest as as usual, but. I guess with the big form factor that, that was probably more tolerable to some Maybe of. some
0: people did that. Um, I, I I don't know. I don't recall anybody actually doing okay. that as a standard a standard approach. Pumps were normally in the abdomen too, of course. Yeah. Although some some synchromed pumps uh, for intravenous infusion were implanted subclavicular region as well. So that, that wasn't uncommon to have that size of device yeah. in that space.
1: No, it, it was certainly not the standard approach, right? but I do remember um, individual patients at Charity where we did that, and I think that was post-Kinetra already because i um, yeah. oh, okay. but, um, okay, interesting. And then um, in 2004, you became vice president and general manager of the global movement disorder business at Medtronic and grew the business, according to your CV, um, from 230 to 350 million in three years. You also led the acquisition and integration of Image Guided Neurologics, who developed the Next Frame, and I think the Stealth Station. Um, can you shor- share some insights about the importance of maybe this ac- acquisition, also in general? Um, you know about uh, startup acquisitions and, and how how valuable that can be. Or, yeah.
0: Yeah. So so um, so companies like Medtronic would would make acquisitions when. It's faster to, to make that acquisition than develop it internally, hmm. faster and, and more cost effective to do that, or when we don't have the technology ourselves or the wherewithal to even do that. And so next Nextframe fit into the latter in that it's, we, were, we were wrestling with STN procedures took a long time. And yeah. so, time is money in the OR and, and neurosurgeons only have so much, so much OR time. And so, we were trying to think of ways to streamline the procedure to make it um, more commercially viable for hospitals and neurosurgeons in terms of time. Hmm. And we thought next frame might be a good way to do that. Um, you didn't have to do the stereotactic frame. Frames were thought to be uncomfortable for patients, and I think they are. <laughs> And, yeah. um, and we thought NextFrame would be a great way to sort of advance what we call procedure solutions. Put everything in a package so we can make the procedure streamlined. Well, changing the practice of medicine and it, it, it is, is very, very difficult. It takes a long time. Uh, people mm-hmm. do what they're trained to do in fellowship programs, and that's how they do it. Yeah. And which is so we, the, the acquisition was not really successful in, in advancing the field from a procedure standpoint. I have to say that. Um, although we did, with that acquisition, get the Stimlock because they had a really nice burr and cap situation, which was, that's really what we got out of that, to be honest with you. We didn't okay. get the other part of what we thought we were going to get. So, oops. Um, and Stell Station was, I wasn't part of that, but we did have a sister acquisition in Colorado that we bought that ultimately was, was, was going to be great for bringing to bear on on the procedure itself and planning, improving accuracy, improving timing. So our goal was to try to combine all those things into one package. Um, And with the people um, who are experts, like people like Franz Gieland, we wanted to clone people like Franz Gieland who were neurophysiologists who could go in the OR and provide value to the neurosurgeons instead of just opening up packets and handing it to them. So people people and and, and technology was part of that process. And I think, by and large, that's that's grown out to be successful. I know Boston has Brain Lab, and they've got great technology, great people, too, doing similar things. So we're trying to make the the, the business of applying DBS um, uh,
1: just more straightforward and more efficient. Sounds good. Cool. Fantastic. Um, So maybe... Uh, to, to to wrap up that part of your career you uh, you know you, you said it was a small part being like on the company side but I think it was also a really big part um, to bring this into market and you really let that effort so um, when you see a patient now these days with um, SDNDBS or even you know maybe in friends and family you, you know somebody that had the, the surgery and see the dramatic effects it has how is that feeling I, I say, ask the same question to Pierre Polak and Tage Bergman, who were in the podcast, but you know, you really made that happen together with others, of course. Um, it, I'm sure it's a great feeling, but can you share that?
0: Yeah, it, it's really, it's really gratifying. And, you know, at the time, you're not really sure um, what's going to happen with these things. Uh, and uh, it doesn't, you know, in, in a career, maybe you get, you get an opportunity like this you know, maybe once, maybe, maybe never. Right. Hmm. A lot of things, um, I, I was just fortunate to be given the responsibility to, to take this on. And, uh, I didn't know where it was going to go necessarily. I didn't some, some t- some days I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, honestly, sure, <laughs> you know, course. we'd have, yeah. to, we'd have setbacks, <laughs> but you know, we had a really good team to do this. And, um, I, you know, I just think the, one thing about being with Matronic, they did give me a lot of opportunity to, you know, to succeed or fail. And I thank the company for, for doing that. Uh, Scott Ward was my, was my boss at the time. He, he, he signed me to this project, and he was a great mentor there. And, um, you know, one, one saying that I, success has many fathers, right? There a lot of people have to, you know, to work together and to make contribution to make this happen. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I'm not the yeah, I'm, not, I'm not the only one. I have a ringside seat though, which was great. Fantastic,
1: yeah. And then um, after Medtronic in 20, uh, 2007, you went into cardiology at CVRX. Um, I won't go too much into detail unless you want to share um, from that period, because then in 2011, you essentially came back to the field of DBS as CEO of functional neuromodulation, which you led for 10 years. Um, can you tell us a bit about your work there?
0: Yeah, I, t- you know, I liked, I liked the, the, the experience at Medtronic and in, in, in adventure within a venture, a venture within a company was, was really gratifying. So I looked upon functional neuromodulation as sort of maybe a recreation of that potentially. And Andres Lozano had some great, uh, some, some very compelling data from, from a uh, foreign stimulation. Hmm. And I had known Andres of course for a long time and, and, um, he and uh, Dan O'Connell started a company to advance this, and which is really, these days, probably the most efficient way to do that, to raise money, to do the next stage of clinical development. And so um, I said, yeah, okay, I'd love to be a part of that. And, um, and we built upon his uh, five or six patient pilot study and uh, generated some funding. Medtronic was an investor at the time, and Venture Capital, Genesis Capital in Toronto, invested in that. And so we... Um, We got FDA to approve a a feasibility study of of 40 plus patients, and we chose. We went to sort of the same sites we had worked with in the past with DBS experience, and and it was for late. It was for Alzheimer's disease. um, You know, basically mild, mild AD, and again, patients. um, You know, signed up for the study, uh, put their their faith and trust in the company and the technology, and. we were able to complete a, a 42 patient study and showed a, a sign that we could we could we could slow the progression of, of the disease and this is a difficult study to do because if you're looking at disease progression how do you design a study to demonstrate that you have to have a pretty long control period sure which we, we 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 set as 12 months hmm. so everybody got implanted and half the patients were turned on Half the patients were kept off for 12 months, and we didn't know if anybody would sign up for that. But lo and behold, again, patients do, you know, when people sign up for clinical studies, they're doing it for a reason as well to advance the science as well as hopefully benefit. And that's pretty amazing. And so we did get an effect. We had to go down to a subgroup to find the effect, but we were able to generate an effect on the standard tools to measure uh, cognition that are used in Alzheimer's disease, yeah. We had great great results in the PET scans um, that correlated with the clinical outcomes, yeah. and um, and we were able to translate that into uh, CMR actually for Boston Scientific's device eventually, even though we used electronic early on, um, and then um, so that was a you know that was a that was a great study that we did, and uh, I think that in the next phase we were, we, were, we were able then to raise additional funds through Boston. In the venture firm to expand that into a pivotal trial, which, which the company is in the middle of that pivotal trial right now. I think there's 70 or 80 patients in. And uh, it just, it, it takes a long time to advance these things, though. I, you know, when I left, it, it I, I turned around and yeah, it had been nine or ten years. Yeah. To get this yeah. done, and there was an interlude between the first study and the second study that I had a time there.
1: But um, it's not for the faint of heart these these startups i can imagine yeah and it's i think it's even a in a way a little known fact that there is ce mark for fornix dbs in in europe um what does that mean do you know like could could people you know if people could actually go to their dbs surgeons and, and and get it and even get reimbursed or um can you talk about that even only answer if this is a easy, easy to talk about, but, um, yeah, I, I, always wondered that. So, so we, um,
0: the, the medical device regulations were just about, or in the process of changing a little bit a lot in, in, in Europe. And so, um, we, we went back and, and forth with the notified body who, 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 can, who gives the, the approvals it was a German notified body. And, um, and we got the approval, and then um, it was for a specific device at the time. We were working with Boston Scientific, but we're hmm. the data we had was on Medtronic technology. And so we actually were able to convince the TUV that Boston the same as Medtronic, so they said okay. Um, and we, we wouldn't have done that without Boston support, So because they're the commercial entity, of course, selling this. I think what Boston, even though they have the C-Mark, and it is in the labeling, at least, it, it, maybe they removed it lately, but... It was actually an indicated use for the technology. I think what Boston felt was its approval is one thing, coverage, reimbursement, acceptance and adoption is another. Sure. So even though the data was compelling enough to get approval, I think Boston uh, felt that we needed more. Hmm. And um, we, so we need that randomized controlled trial to, to go out and, and broaden the, the application. I think that was their decision making process, which makes total it's total sense,
1: yeah yeah got it and then then you left to biotronic in twenty twenty one was it because you were recruited away or did you want to leave or was there a good reason to leave uh, the startup world again or
0: no, I didn't want to leave I loved working with uh with with andres and and uh, you know the team there Vince Owens and the clinical yeah. sites they're all great but you mentioned I been. I looked back and I realized it had been 10 years since. Yeah. So I got a call from the from the Biotronic people and uh, and they were launching, uh, you know, a new spinal cord stimulator into the marketplace for pain, chronic intractable pain. And just just for reference, that's about a two billion dollar business in the U.S. So it's quite a lot bigger than the spinal cord than the DBS business. Yeah. However, the competition is fierce. It's Medtronic. Abbott, Boston Scientific, Nebra was a new player in the marketplace with a high frequency stimulation. So, my first question to them is, does the world really need another spinal cord stimulator Hmm. um, in the marketplace? And I had exposure to that from Medtronics, I knew something about the business still. But they had a very compelling compelling, uh, proposition to bring um, some value to the marketplace and I, I, I studied it and convinced myself that this this was um, a very competitive product they were trying to bring forward and I said, yeah this would be great to be a part of this even though we've got a, a huge we we're competing against fantastic companies and fast fantastic technology so I decided to you know to take to take the leap and so just for for, for your benefit as well biotronics is a cardio you're German so you may have heard of biotronic right so they're based in Berlin. Do you know them?
1: I I no, I don't, and I had not. In, in fact, yeah. Um, well, let so me tell you them. about yeah. Yeah. So, Please. so they're
0: they're a German based, the privately held company. So one, they're owned by an individual. The founder is Max Shollack, who, who developed the company at the same time. Earl Bakken was developing a U.S. pacemaker for for the U.S. marketplace with Medtronic. Mm-hmm. So they were contemporaries, and he 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 worked very similar story to Earl's. He worked to develop a pacemaker for the German market in the in the early sixties. And they've grown tremendously over the years. They're a cardiovascular based company worldwide. And um, the the current owner, uh, Max Jr. Uh, is is a is a brilliant technologist and and wanted to, and, and really excited about neuromodulation and using just as Medtronic did expanding the base technology to a new indication. So They worked for several years, um, made a commitment to the spinal stimulation space, space, and developed this SCS device. And um, so, so that's where we're competing. I'll tell you about the technology. But Max went to a neuromodulation meeting in uh, Barcelona, um, summer before last night. Showed him around, introduced him to to different people, and and uh, and. And at the end of the first day, I go, Max, what do you think? This is great. Isn't it? Neuromodulation is fantastic. We're really, really excited. He goes, yes, Todd. And now you must deliver. <laughs> 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 so so, he's, so, so really now that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to deliver on the, on the promises.
1: Fantastic. And, and it is, um, so. So one question that I should know more about, but don't, um, in Germany, my feeling always was that SCS was not such a big thing. Um, unfortunately, I think, because it's great technology, but somehow, you know, I worked a bit in neurology, I rarely crossed paths with it. And, and then, you know, my, my grandfather had um, had pain and I really even didn't know who would even do that in Germany. Like, is it is that true? Or did I just not know my own country? So, so um, is it underutilized? In comparison to the U.S., in Germany, would you know? Yeah, I
0: would say so. I say eighty yeah. percent. So the two billion dollar market in the U.S. that's 80 percent of the worldwide revenue usage is in yeah. is in the U.S. Um, Germany is a big market um, uh, relative to the other countries in, in Europe, and Australia is also big. And I and I'm not sure these days what, but but in the U.S. the pain management subspecialty is really, has really grown tremendously. So you have anesthesiologists doing pain management, physical medicine, uh, rehabilitation people, and neurosurgeons all doing pain management, so uh, they have a whole armamentarium of, of technologies and treatments and how they can provide specifically for pain relief, yeah. so it's really been great for pa- patients with chronic intractable pain, and SCS is one component of their, of, of, of their armamentarium, and uh, it's used for patients with pain of the trunk and limbs. Used in Europe a little bit for angina and, and PVD. Germany was a big PVD market for SCS, mm-hmm. but that's how it's typically utilized.
1: Yeah, makes sense. And 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 just for for the record, I, I think we, we do have good pain management in general in Germany. But but just the SCS component, I think not many surgeons do it, and then um, even not many centers offer it. Um, yeah. it. It was my impression, and and so so that's a great opportunity to expand, especially. Working for a Berlin-based company, um, but you are in um, Minnesota, right? So you you yep. work remotely, I, I assume.
0: Yeah. So the the company's the U.S. headquarters is based in Lake Oswego, so they also do manufacturing there, um, as well as as in as in Berlin. And uh, so I go back and forth with to Lake Oswego, and they have other sub components of the Biotronic um, family. So they do they do uh, manufacturing for um, for other tech other other kinds of businesses t- even in the neuromodulation space they do they do contract manufacturing so they're great. They're uh, and y- impressive company.
1: And your your current job description is president of the neuromodulation business at Biotronic. So how does your typical day look like? Um, a lot of Zoom calls or um, a lot of travels or. What do you typically do? It's probably hard to save.
0: So we so we just launched um, in the in the U.S. marketplace on April in April. We got approval March thirty first, and so now we're trying to compete as I mentioned against these big companies as as a as a you know sixth player in the marketplace. So we've got some every year. We establish annual objectives. What do we want to accomplish this year? How do we advance our business? And so, so we, so I use those, you know, those objectives, and we also have a five-year strategy plan, strategy plan. But if we nail down what we want to get done this year, we've got a list of, you know, ten to twelve top things we want to accomplish as a business. So my goal is focusing on those every day to make sure we're executing on on achieving those goals. Um, as you can imagine, resources are not infinite. So even though we're, we're a growing business, uh, you know, I, I, I say we, we want, I always want more resources available. So I'm managing upward within the organization, I try to convince Berlin that, you know, you know, we're an outpost in the U S so you need to, you need to understand we need more, more, more resources. Um, so I'm doing a lot of managing upward. Um, and then, uh, just day to day, you know, we're solving problems. We, you know, as you as we launch our technology, there are things that we're learning uh, once we get in the marketplace that need to be addressed very quickly, and um, so we need to address those. Uh, motivating team members um, and the entire organization because we're a, a new player within the biotronic family, and and frankly, the company's made commitments, sacrifices even to support the neural business to get to where we are today, and so I just want to I just want to you know. Make make sure the company uh, who've made those sacrifices are aware that um, we're doing something important
1: for the for the marketplace. Yeah. Since we mainly talk about DBS in the podcast, some of the listeners might not even know, exactly know what SCS is. Could you maybe get give a quick summary, and then also, if you can talk or want to talk about it, what what the benefits of the Biotronic product are compared to to others? Yeah, I'd be happy to.
0: So, spinal cord stimulation is, is, um, is, is a way to treat patients who have failed pretty much most other interventions. And typically, uh, the typical indication be chronic back and limb pain often is a result of a failed, back, a failed surgery in the back right, area. So, mm-hmm. you implant electrodes very similar to what we put in the, in the brain, um, but they're placed epidurally. You know, between T seven, T nine, typically, um, two of those, and they get they get attached again to a stimulator, much like a, a brain stimulator, DBS stimulator, with a battery, electronics, and so it's all implanted, and it sends electrical current to the uh, to the spinal cord from the epidural space, and it masks the pain essentially, yeah. and so that's 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 what it is, um, and it's. Um, it's a very effective treatment. Uh, lots of clinical data supporting this. It's been around since the, you know, since the 70s. And what, um, what Biotronic has done, which I think is really, really unique and could be extended to other areas, neuromodulation and DBS, is that the device that we implant is a digital device in, in addition to being a device with a battery and, and sending electrical current to the body it's, it's capable of collecting all sorts of information about how the patient's interacting with the device. Is the device on or off? How often has it been recharged? Are, are, are there any impedance issues with the electrodes? So that information gets sent to the via Bluetooth to the patient programmer, and that data goes up to the cloud. So we, we're able to monitor interaction, how the device is performing and how the patient's interacting with the device daily. Whereas... Yeah. Other, heretofore, the device has been implanted, and then patients go away. They come back for mm-hmm. follow-up, but they could go away and then go home and then not realize they've turned their device off or they, because they're not neuromodulation experts. And by the time sure. they figure that out, they have to call the rep. The rep has to call the physician. It could be days, weeks, or even longer before they get a, 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 a visit scheduled with a physician to address it. And it could be a matter of just turning it back. Oh, your device is off. Believe me, that mm. happens. Simple. Yeah. We are able to also program the device from any, via cellular from anywhere in the world. Wow. Well, don't need Wi-Fi. You can just program it. And these programming visits, are, 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 you don't have to do those. Um, whereas before, just to turn it back on, you have to schedule a visit with a physician. It takes time, clinic time. All that stuff is a problem. And, so, um, and, and once we, so we can do that, and we can also figure out if, if the device needs attention. So sometimes the device does need attention. You need to bring the patient back. So we think we can help improve the outcomes by focusing on what's happened after the implant. And um, this is built on a legacy of Biotronic doing this for 20 years. So cybersecurity technology capable of doing this is not trivial. And so um, we're leveraging our experience in cardiac, cardiac rhythm management to be able to bring this, what I think is a unique innovation to this to the neuromodulation um, field.
1: Fantastic. Okay, very very exciting. Thanks for that. Um, and then any any key roadmaps on that that the company plans that you can already share of, of in new things, or um, I, I I think you cannot even if you had plans to go into DBS you probably wouldn't be able to talk about it, but anything in the SCS market that you're excited about that's upcoming potentially?
0: So um, so I'm I'm president of Biotronics Neuro business right now yeah. we talked a lot about SES, I'm not president of the SES business, that's, well, that's our beachhead so we need to be successful there but we definitely have plans to, 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 to branch out and use our technology capabilities German quality engineering design and innovation to other areas of neuromodulation. So we're scanning the horizon to see where, where, where the best opportunities you know, exist uh, you know, for, for biotronic to invest in. And we're very bullish uh, on, on neuro, as you, I am personally, so I'm trying to, you know, and, and I think our leader, uh, our owner, Max, Max, is also, we're just trying to figure out the right ways to, to allocate our resources.
1: Fantastic. And then on the podcast, I mainly speak with scientists and clinicians and uh, sometimes patients, but we haven't heard many representatives from industry, um, as I mentioned, but um, we both know that academics continuously wonder or may wonder whether a life in industry could be more rewarding for them. Could you steelman the case um, to work for industry in compared compared to academia? And of course, also feel free to talk about downsides as well. Sure. So. Let's see.
0: So when I when I worked at, at the University of Minnesota, I was just a, you know in you know twenties in my twenties, yeah. And I got I was in awe of the different you know the physicians there, the scientists, and, and I thought my my word, all the smart people in the world are here in in this university on university settings. And um, and then I get you know sort of those industry people, what do they really know? <laughs> and uh, then I got exposed to the people at Medtronic. Well, you know, I guess I guess I'm wrong here because. There's a lot of really smart people in Medtronic too PhD sure. scientists and I really changed I really changed my my thinking um, and then and then I'll just extend that a little bit um, then I thought the people everybody in Medtronic are the smartest people and nobody else in the world and that boy <laughs> was I wrong there you know so so um, I you know I apologize to everybody who you know who I was thinking like about like that um, but I think, you know, I think sometimes scientists probably, maybe I'm wrong here, but they're just a bunch of business people in the company. They don't really know much about, you know, their, their, their accountants and trying to make revenue. Um, there, there, are, there are business people there for sure, sure but sure. they're, you know, they're, they're, they're very smart uh, marketing people, commercial people, communication, clinical people. Scientists, engineers who are world class,
1: and I'm so sure. yeah. if
0: you're if you're a scientist thinking you don't want to get into industry because it won't be that interesting, maybe just a bunch of business people telling scientists what to do. It's really not. It's really not the case, and and companies can bring, or well, big companies like Amitronic or Boston Abbott and others, can bring large amounts of resources to bear on a project if if they're committed to it, yeah. and in the academic world, you know. Um, it's 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 fighting all the time, you know, and people are really good at getting funding in academia and, and I and I you have been successful in in others, but you know, it's 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 tough to do that. I'm not saying it's easy to make company, but the resources if you if you're on a cool project committed by the company, there's there's a lot there's a lot of opportunity. And you have access then to world class scientists, technologists. Both within and outside the company, that you continue to, to foster those relationships with. So, if you left if you left academia to go to industry, you're not severing ties. You're still got to work sure. with all those colleagues,
1: of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: To advance, to advance, you know, because it's a collaborative effort. So, I would say that's that's the positive side, and also for big companies, if you if you choose to go to a startup, um, you're working on. They get funded because they're working on groundbreaking things, right? Of course. any yeah. startup who raises money, the, the the investment comes but it's it's unique, it's ground breaking, could be a game changer for whatever field it's in. There's large potential there. So that's a chance to be to be in a place where lightning might strike. And who knows you could you could end up working on a DBS project that eventually, you know, goes out to the marketplace and, and treats that, you know, thousands and thousands of patients. Yeah. Downside, well, um, big companies—it's frustrating. But if you get big companies, need bureaucracy. Sometimes decisions are slow. Hmm. You know, um, I'm not saying they're always fast in academia. But if you're working in smaller groups, um, it, you know, you may be able to make things happen quicker. Um, sometimes that's frustrating. Shifting priorities maybe can be frustrating. You know we're 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 making a big play here this year, but all of a sudden something happens and we've got to make shift priorities. Hmm. And then for startups, funding uh, funding can run out if you don't hit your milestones. If if you realize you thought was a great opportunity, it doesn't turn out to be a great one. You you may you may end up running out of money, and then what do you do? I mean it's 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 um, it's nerve wracking for it's not for the faint of heart. It's nerve wracking for the People trying to raise the money, who managing people, people who want to get paid next month, <laughs> and I've been there. Where we're, you know, we have we have enough money for the next few months, everybody. So, um, especially COVID was difficult. So it's not that's not for the faint. P- highs are high, valleys are peaks and valleys.
1: Hmm.
0: So that's not for the pain of heart. But you could be working on something groundbreaking if you do take that that jump.
1: Thanks a lot. That's very insightful. And just for the record, I, I really have deep respect and uh, towards people in the industry. I, I even think, you know, I, I could probably not do that. Um, because it you know the academia feels a bit more like a safe harbor where it's it's more about, you know, um, the arts for the arts to some degree, right? You you guys really have to you know, the stuff you develop has to actually work. And, of course, we try that in academia too, but it, it's not that so much depends on it, right? It's more like a paper versus no. So I have deep respect, and I think developing, um, you know, a business like you did for Medtronic, but also now, you know, is, is so fantastic, and I, I'm sure you have to be very smart to do that well. So, um, yeah, uh, but, but I, I get the general sense that maybe sometimes academia sits a bit on the high horse and thinks they're the... The smartest or so I, I really don't think that's true um they have a yeah but but it, it was a great summary just to hear the pros and cons thank you for that um and then maybe to move on and also s- slowly wrap up already um what's your feeling to what the general state of investments in the field of dBS and neuromodulation do you think we live in bullish or bearish times you already mentioned that you feel bullish but maybe worldwide is there a lot of investment currently going on or is it scarce? what do, what do you think
0: yeah, I think I, I'm really I'm very bullish on it, and I, I, I go to a lot of the conferences, the neuromodulation conferences, um, and even the pre-conference meetings to, to see what's new and in the marketplace, what's what's being invested in. Hmm. And I think there's always investment available for great ideas. Although in 23, I think in, in 22 or in 20 it might be down a little bit overall venture investing in 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 medical technology in general. Um, but I think in neuro, um, I, I read a report from one of the banks on this. Investing in the neuro um, in medical devices for neuro is 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 pretty high. There's one point three billion dollars invested last year and forty-three different deals, and that's just for perspective, that's higher than that's the highest versus imaging, um, surgical opportunities, cardiovascular and ortho. So there's a lot of activity going on in the neurospace. It's not all DBS. Sure. Um, it's neuromodulation, peripheral nerve, vagus nerve stimulation, but I think it's a good time. I think it's a really good time to be in, in, in the neurosciences field because uh, there are just so many people it's sort of you know working on these on these problems and challenges, and the technology is sort of keeping up with the demands of the uh, of the scientists and and clinicians like closed loop. Right, closed loops, things are happening. So I, I, I'm very, yeah, I'm very bullish, as you can as you can tell.
1: What do you think the next big breakthrough will be, or, or is it around the corner? What what could it be? Um, these are always, yeah, th- these these next breakthroughs
0: take a long time t- to develop, right? And then there are suddenly a <laughs> <laughs> breakthrough, but I'm really excited about a few things. Um, I've been paying attention to Mayberg's work and depression for a long time, and I think... Yeah. Um, that that is really going to reach reach a, a point where um, it's going to benefit a lot of patients. And if you think about the initial studies when they were designed, heterogeneous problem, longstanding disease illness, and then they expected people to get better in three months. That's a pretty tough, you know, pretty tough ask, right? Sure. Um, so, but I think they've learned a lot from that experience. Definitely, people in that those studies got better over time. So I think that's going to be great. I'm really excited about um, uh, Nico Schiff's work. In mm-hmm. uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, published in Nature Neuroscience. Yeah. Uh, holy cow! If that if that if that could work, that could be t- hugely beneficial to to patients with with TBI. Um, a lot of great work with psychiatric disorders uh, and addiction disorders. Yeah. Alpern's work and uh, Alec Wedge's work. Um,
1: yeah,
0: I think is is really promising. And then. Um, I think early DBS, um, Hacker, Mallory Hacker, and David Charlesworth, I wish that could get some funding, uh, early intervention DBS for yeah. Parkinson's disease could, could be really cool. I, I think their clinical data is very compelling It's just moving that off the blocks
1: yep. is, uh, is, I think is really important. Fantastic. And you, you've been wildly successful in life. Um, if, if I forced you to, to leave uh, Biotronic tomorrow, where, where would you go? Um, Next step, and any or any of the indications that I just mentioned, if those yeah, those
0: would sense. be exciting. Those would really be exciting work to work on. BioTronics is a great company, um, but you, since you posed the since you posed the question, I'm giving you giving you the answer. We got a lot of work to accomplish in Biotronic, but I think if if, if, I, have to, if I have to answer your question, that's how I would I would put it.
1: Fantastic. And then, um, what were some general eureka moments that you had in in your career? We, we talked about the one case, um, you know, in, in, in Tampa and Florida. Obviously, I'm sure that was a eureka moment, but other similar um, experiences you may have had? I, I
0: think I think I mentioned this already, but you, 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 one would think that if you have an effect like that, the rest of it should be easy. It should be obvious that hmm. everybody should, if you can see that, why not utilize that for everybody? But changing the practice of medicine is is really really difficult, and so people do what they do in fellowships. They learn how to, they learn what they learn, and it works for them. So I think I think um, maybe what people don't really understand is even with the most dramatically effective treatment or therapy out there, it it still can be underutilized if um, if if people don't know about it. They don't they're not yep. educated properly about it. Um, so that. I think that's a that's a learning that that's a that's a learning thing that's a learning um experience for, for anybody who's trying to develop a new indication or new therapy.
1: Hmm. Do you regret anything in your professional life? Um well
0: one, one thing uh that comes to mind uh when I was working back in the lab in the in the University of Minnesota days, uh, Rushefsky would, you know, we, I, I was fortunate to be on a few publications there. And then one day, for, for some, whatever reason, I told Rushefsky that, uh, you know, I don't really need to be on these publications. Mm-hmm. Now, why would I say that? Uh, I don't know why I said that, but I missed out on being on some really cool publications. It's two science papers, wow. uh, you know, that that were published out of that lab and, and, and lots of other things. So I don't know that it hurt me necessarily professionally at all, but... But boy, is that a dumb thing to say.
1: Because you already thought you would go into industry and then, you know, I you guess
0: know. I I guess I wasn't gonna make my, my my future my career in academia. And of course, yeah. if I was gonna do that, that's probably what was my thinking there, yeah. I'm yeah. not gonna be a PhD and work here forever, so I don't really need
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Any advice for young researchers entering neuroscience, academia, or um, maybe more importantly, industry? Above and beyond, not getting on science papers.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say if you're interested in industry, try it's not easiness because of travel and cost sometimes, but go to these professional society meetings. Hmm. And uh, there are because, like, like North American Air Modulation Society, the International Air Modulation Society, or local meetings, because there are a lot of industry people there who are scientists and engineers who go to those meetings and I think just go up to them and say, Hey, I'm so-and-so thinking about industry or like to learn. Can you, can you point me to the right person here? I can talk to, I guarantee you anybody in one of those booths, they look intimidating, lots of people in suits are standing around, you know, Yeah. but go, go up to one of those people. I'll guarantee you. They'll, they, they may be a scientist themselves. They may be an engineer themselves or they can put you in touch with somebody there who could explain to you what it's like to be an in industry who was who also you know in, in academia for a while or actually got their PhD then went to the mm. industry eventually so that's a way to build a relationship or network with with those people and you can get some inside info that way and that'd be a, re, a really good, good way to do that.
1: Fantastic and then um, yeah the future of the field how, how will neuromodulation in 10 years look like? You covered some of the new indications already, so maybe it's redundant, but any, any other insights on that?
0: I, I'd say companies are focused on um, on uh, on score size and those kinds of things, but I think they're also looking at ways to close the loop and being a little bit more elegant mm-hmm. rather than just pound the, the, ner- the nervous system 24 hours a day with current. That's yeah. works, but it could probably be improved upon in the signal that you're basing that stimulation on probably comes from somewhere else within the brain. Mm. So, sti- so, 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 um, sensing one place, stimulating another place. Yeah. Maybe not continuously either. Could be. I think. I think those will be some future advancements, and then using the technology that's already implanted to provide the clinician some information about what's going on in the brain or the outcome itself. That can then be utilized to 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 to, 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 to um, advance the outcome. Yeah. So to me, those are those are those are important things. And of course, there's brain-computer interface that we're always in the news. Um, and the and the Onward Company, who's doing work on paraplegic people, really fantastic and beautiful. I should have mentioned that early on. Um, those those things
1: are um, are really extremely promising and exciting. So you mean in general? Did you mention a specific company or? Um, so onward. There's a company in in, in, in yeah.
0: Switzerland, Onward, which is wor- using spinal cord simulation for. Yes. A okay. Patient. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Jocelyn Bloch and uh, uh, Cortine's um, work, I think, right? That. BPFL, that which, okay. yeah. 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 Really fantastic. cool. Yeah.
0: Really cool work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And
1: very exciting. Been trying to get them on the podcast too, and they even said yes once, but I, um, I didn't follow up enough. So so should oh. should. Uh, should should try again. So yeah, fantastic. Last question, missed opportunities as a field. So do you think there's something we should do but are not doing well enough?
0: Boy. Um I, I, I don't think I don't think I really have a I don't think I really have a good answer to that. maybe I I think maybe that, that if academia could do and it maybe even industry here is just um Try to get more, you know, young people in, in the field Hmm. and uh, because, because I think that's, that's the the more people thinking about the problems and the challenges that we have. And, and if we can get more funding in, in these areas, um, you know, the, the future depends on the people, right? It really depends on the people thinking about this stuff. So I, I would, every chance we get, we should try to entice, you know,
1: bright, bright, bright people to, to enter, to enter this field. That's a fantastic um closing statement. I love that uh anything I should have asked that 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 we did not cover I know I gr- covered a lot of ground, but
0: I think you're very thorough in in your, in your <laughs> questioning so <laughs> it's a nice way of
1: saying uh, that I took a lot of your time and I, um, I I thank you again for for taking so much time um for this thought fantastic's
0: it's been it's it's been great Andreas. you do great you do great work and i I look forward to listening to your Podcast is somewhere while I'm riding around the Minneapolis lakes.